לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. And welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman, Highland Park, New Jersey, Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation, Anche Met. And joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shek, the Day School of Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anche Chesed, New York City. Great to see you. We are recording this on day 61 of the war and uh, the week prior to, a couple of days prior to Hanukkah, Hanukkah 5784. It's a, um, a complicated Hanukkah, of course, for the Jewish people. And of course, we are uh, recording this and studying together in the hope that light will come and fill darkness, uh, that all of the pain and the suffering that uh, the Jewish people is experiencing, and together with with all the um, the the, the massive, massive destruction and upheaval that is going on, that there'll be some light and comfort to the to the world. Um, Hanukkah really represents a lot of promise, but we're studying today with comfort with the Parshat Vayeshev, which is the best Parsha in the entire Torah. Parshat Vayeshev, my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, but it's, it, we have to locate ourselves in Breshit because we're now in the last four parshiot of Breshit, um, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, and Vayechi, the story that focuses on this extraordinary character, Yosef, but it really is a story that also functions as the, the culmination of, of a great character, Yaakov. And, and the, the Parsha, the first verse in the Parsha, uh, or the second verse of the Parsha, really indicates that we're shifting gears here. Jacob was settled in the land where his father had sojourned, the land of Canaan. These are the generations, or this is the line of Jacob. Yosef. Joseph was 17, tended the flocks with his brothers as a helper to the sons of his father's wives, Bilha and Zilpah, and so, you, you know, we have so much information compressed into those lines. The first piece of information that I would point out is that, okay, this is the narrator telling us we're, we're transitioning. We're transitioning now from the life of Jacob, which had all of its tumult that we saw preceding here, to the life of the family, the boys, the, and this son, Joseph, who has a very special uh, role within the family system. And then we, we are given a very peculiar set of inform, you know, data that he is with Bil- the, the sons of Bilha and the sons of Zilpah, the wives of his father. So, he, so the Torah is telling us something very clever here. We know that there are uh, other children, the total children here that are named, 
we have the all 12 sons and one daughter, they're named. Uh, Joseph doesn't cohort with the sons of Leah, and he only cohorts with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. He, another thing is that Israel loves Joseph because he's the child of his old age. And he made him the coat of many colors. So, so let me just interject here for a moment. What do you think that actually means that he's the Ben Zikunim? We might have thought, if we were paying attention to an earlier parasha, that he loved Joseph more than his brothers because he was the son of his favorite wife which has nothing to do with being Ben Zakunim. That's an accident. So what is the implication here? The son of his old age. So I, I, we can go a number of places with it, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this, which is Benjamin is not born in the way that the story is told here. Okay, A plausible interpretation is the youngest child. He's the, he's the youngest child presently, He's the Ben Zikunim, and and to this very day, and of course, you know, it's I I I use a caution when I say modern Hebrew language uses Ben Zikunim as the expression of my youngest child or the child born to me in my old age. So so you could you could say, well, you know, it's a reference to Joseph Ben Zikunim, and Benjamin is is really, you know, not really mentioned here. He's, he's an afterthought. And, and he doesn't qualify because uh, it's more about the relationship with Rachel. In the conventional telling, according to the chronological, you know, telling of these stories, if we read the Bible chronologically, Benjamin is born already, and there is no Rachel. And so Joseph, and this is, I believe, Rashi was that Joseph is favored because he reminds uh, Jacob of Rachel. But then Benjamin would remind Jacob of Rachel too. And that leaves us with the question of why Benjamin wouldn't have some kind of status like this. So I'm going to offer the following proposition, hypothesis, that the story is not in chronological order the way that the Torah is telling. That the here, what, what we have here, we have six children, six boys born to Leah, plus the daughter, Dina. We have the two children of Bilhah and the two children of Zilpah, and we have Joseph. Which one of these is not like the other? Joseph. Joseph has nobody. Joseph is the lone child to Jacob and Rachel. Rachel's still around in, as the Parsha begins, and he has nobody to play with. He has nobody to cohort with. The Leah sons and daughter could care less about him. All he has are the children of Bilhah and Zilpah, who, as we can point out, are subservient to the, the other wives. Okay, And so therefore, he elevates himself in, in as a position. He's the, the son of the preferred wife, but not he's not a partner to the wife that has the most children. He has nobody to play with, so he he has he's there's a, a political dimension here. The only people that he can exert power over or influence over are the children of, of Bilhah and Zilpah. And so therefore, Vihunar Ipanevilha Vibanis upon the Sheh Aviv, 
And he, he, he curries favor with his father by bringing details of those four brothers to his father. So I think one of the things you're suggesting in the way that you narrate this is that Joseph is actually born considerably after the last two sons of Leah, I think are the last two born, right? It's, yes, correct. And that makes Jacob's behavior kind of odd, that he would choose someone who's considerably younger to um, watch over the sons of Bill and Zilpah. So therefore, he's not choosing him. He, it's Joseph. Joseph is is motivated himself to to, you know, spy on the other brothers. And this was this is what makes Joseph somewhat interesting, that that he has not pathetic. No, <laughs> he is. He he wants things. He's alone. I, I, you know, there is this, if we read it this way, I can develop a certain amount of empathy for him because he's a lone, you know, uh, child. Okay. He's so he's man. also a social climber even here. Yes, exactly. He, he wants to be to advance. Right? He and has then, no social life, so right. he's going to do what he can to become a powerful person. Okay. So, so, like Henry so, Kissinger. I, exactly. So, so then I would say, <laughs> You know, in the next scene, when he goes out to Shechem, and the you know, Jacob sends him out to Shechem, and he's and he's uh, stopped by the stranger, uh, he says, We always read that verse with lots of layers of interpretation. I'm looking for my brothers. I'm looking for my brothers. Why? Because he has no brothers. He is alone. And he needs, he needs that. He wants so much to be a part of them. And he's not. Your whole, your whole reading, um, in my opinion, would be, first of all, it is not impossible. I think it's got some chronological problems. Most, most of all, that Rachel's death is and Benjamin's birth are described already before any of this happens in the Torah, but that's not insurmountable. The Torah does tell things out of order. That's that's fine. Um, but I think that the, the emotional power of your reading would actually be enhanced if Rachel was dead. Because then his aloneness and his real marginality, because she would be at the center of the household, the the center of the whole you know polygamous household, were she still alive, and um, and Yosef's uh, perhaps cruel behavior. I mean, this is the way Rashi reads it, based on the midrash. You know that he that as you said, he's he's picking on the marginal children. Um, uh, the Bnei Bilhan Zilpa, and he's trying to lord lord it over them, uh, and he's a total teenager, who and the Bible even gives his age at seventeen. I think the the stress on his isolation, his loneliness, the fact that his brothers. Then the one thing that you said in in the emotional reading, uh, the thing that I didn't agree with was that they that the brothers, the children of Leah, don't care. Oh no, they care a lot. They care a lot, and they want to defeat him because. He is the favorite child. He is the beloved one. And so the brothers and the generation that he is part of, they have marginalized him and been very hostile to him. And they can't even say hello to him because, frankly, he's he's like prodigiously talented, totally special. Just ask him. He doesn't, he doesn't let anybody he doesn't let anybody forget that for a minute. So they're like really angry with him. And I think that the emotional power of that of that whole reading would be enhanced if we said he's an orphan. 
okay, if he's an orphan. So I, I want to just point out one other thing that they're really in Rashid, there's only one mama's boy, and that's Yaakov. Okay. Possible exception is Ishmael, but Joseph is his father's son. That's the meaning, I think, of the father giving him the Katon Epasim, the coat of many colors, is that Jacob thoroughly identifies with Joseph over and against all the other brothers. Well, let me, let me. This is enhanced, by the way. This is enhanced by the uh, Eilat told Yaakov Yosef. This is the story of Jacob. Let me tell you about Joseph. And, And the Midrash about that says that they were spit and image. Okay, but if Rachel is still alive, there's a different dynamic here, and which is that you know I, I I yes of course traditionally we and conventionally we read this jo- Joseph is an orphaned uh, an orphaned adolescent or seventeen year old he's got no mother but if he has a mother at seventeen and he has a father at seventeen his father is you know well on in years his mother may yet be well on you know g- getting up there as well uh, and but but this group the Jacob Rachel Joseph group is the power group of the family and and the resentment of the Leah group to the to the Rachel group is enhanced by the fact that she's alive Rachel and that in the story there's just a lot of friction and that and that he he by by being sent out by Jacob uh the, the they're acting out not only on Joseph's favorite status, but they're acting out on on Rachel as well. They already have acted out well. And again, you know, Rachel, we have that little little episode in the previous parsha where after Rachel is reported to have died, Bilha, sorry, Reuben sleeps with Bilha. That's complicated. Um, you know, usurping the place of whatever here here's here's what i want to say if if benjamin is not yet born and rachel is still alive there is a whole layer to this that happens especially even next week spoiler alert when the brothers come down and they tell him that you know we are we we were 12 we're, we're 12 boys born to one father one is not one one is no longer here and the other is the other is with his father that means bakaton you know the the little one that would be a revelation to joseph at that point but you know i want to just um throw one thing down your way which which may make your reading even further plausible or may go the other way which is that um you know, the story takes place along the central mountain spine in the land of Israel. Sure. Jacob has lived up in Shechem. He's been at Beit El, which is roughly, you know, contemporary Ramallah. He's he's buried Rachel in Ephrat, which is Beit Lechem, which is, you know, where that is. And then he's in living in Hebron. So we just learned last week when the death of Rachel was described that, that she was died in childbirth on the road to Beit Lechem, and she was buried there in an ostentatious or, you know, very notable grave. And the Midrashic uh, power of that is like, presumably, all the way back to ancient times, and, and then still through medieval times, and then still today, um, there is this spot of Kever Rachel, and 
it is supposed to be a place for that that most most powerful intercessory prayer, the prayer of the wailing mother, the grieving mother. And she watched her children, you know, be led out into Babylonian exile past past that spot, and she cried for them and wept for them. And so, if you want to read it with a conventional uh, chronology, Jacob sends Yosef from Hebron, makes him walk past Rachel's grave to meet them in Shechem, where he will be beaten and sold into slavery. So one nice echo could be, if she if she's dead and buried, then really he walks past her grave, makes a pilgrimage to her grave, and then and then gets sold into slavery. On the other hand, the, the famous verses from Yirmiyahu, chapter 31, the voice is heard in Ramah, uh, the bitter weeping, Rachel mevaka al baneha, she, she weeps for her children. She refuses to be consoled for her children, for they are no more. Well, both of those two phrases, you know, and Jacob refuses to be comforted, and, and the brothers say that one is no more. Both of those words appear in that verse from Jeremiah. So if Rachel is alive when these things happen, then Jeremiah sort of has her going through that weeping thing exactly as Jacob does. Fascinating, yeah. And and furthermore, um, furthermore, if if she is alive, if the sort of between the lines she's alive, but she's never mentioned. She's never mentioned. Bit, then then it has a, a lovely parallel to what we think of as Sarah at the Akedah, mm-hmm. right? She knows that it's happening. We don't really hear her reaction. Um, it, it could be, it could be, like resonant in in the mind of Jeremiah telling this story. It could be that Jeremiah is thinking like you. Look, and even even all of us, you know, who are we're, we're weaving a kind of parallel narrative, imagining that that the the story now is being told through the eyes of Jacob, who is mourning. But there's a another. There's a mother who's mourning. We we the Torah is not concerned about the Torah is not giving us any information about that. But he refuses to be comforted, and that there's even this this the the marital bond between Rachel and Jacob is is not functioning in in that way. Or unless and here I want to post this as the most radical interpretation. Unless they she tries to comfort him. And from that, Benjamin is born, and Benjamin is born without Joseph's knowledge, and 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 we have a different we have a different kind of uh, portraiture of Jacob here, who who even in this you know terrible terrible moment can 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 become a a father again, and that Benjamin becomes the child born to Jacob and Rachel, subsequent to the quote, passing of Joseph. I think that has, you know, there's some remarkable potential with that. So the interesting thing is it doesn't quite fit in with the way Joseph is going to respond in a couple weeks because he doesn't ask if his mother is still alive, which you would think he would if when he left she was. And... Uh you know that that's a detail that needs to be worked out i think okay fine 
All right, so let, let's let's we'll leave that there, and we'll get. I hope but we it get, is intriguing. So I hope on. we get some response from from our our respondents. The, the, I want to I want to focus. You know, given that that we we are so wrapped up in the in the saga of the chatufim, the chatufot, the the hostages, um, and Joseph, this moment where where it's he. You know, they say, you know, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. We'll, we'll kill him and we'll throw him into one of the pits. And so uh, Reuben says, no, we're going to save him. Uh, and then, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, let's hold him around for a bit. And then um, Yehuda, uh, they, they strip him, they throw him in the pit. Uh, they go to sit down and eat. And then Reuben is away. What 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 benefit do we get from killing our brother? Let's sell him. Let's sell him to this band of Ishmaelites. So I, I want to say the the idea of of kidnapping in in Mishpatim in Parshat Mishpatim when it talks about stealing a person, the death it's a death penalty. And taking away someone's freedom, selling them as a slave, and, and you know, or putting them as a hostage, is akin to death. Is akin to murder. And you know, given what we have seen over the last you know week and a half with the release of some of the hostages and what they're saying and the harrowing details, and and I mean, none of these people are are going to be the same. They're they're all shattered. Um, and of course the. 136, 138 that are still there, uh, we, we we don't even, you know, we can't even imagine what they are going through in the dungeon, in the pit, in the pits of Gaza. Um, and, and, you know, we're reading these parshiot with a split screen. We're reading it, you know, one, to be immersed in the story. We're also reading it with reality unfolding in front of our and our, our our eyes on a daily basis. Everything is changing on a daily basis. I, I just want to to see if you have had any thoughts about this. You know, reading the story differently, reading all of these stories differently, given given the realities that we are experiencing. Is it is there something that you're seeing differently here in these stories? I I, I I'm seeing you know incarceration differently. I'm seeing you know. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be a hostage. And of course, none of us can imagine. And if Joseph is giving any inspiration to these people, and, you know, and, and because he's the classic example of the prisoner who, you know, he he, he gets redeemed. He he comes out and he, but he's traumatized. We, he, he has to be traumatized by this. I don't know if you want to reflect on well, that. I, I feel like Joseph... First of all, this is, you know, interestingly enough, there there's there are very, very few um descriptions of prison in the Tanakh. So when the for, for plague of the firstborn hits Egypt, um uh, it's you know from the Pharaoh on the throne to the to the uh lowliest prisoner in the dungeon. Jeremiah, because he's telling the king stuff he doesn't want to hear, gets thrown in a muddy pit. Uh, in Jerusalem, some sort of incarceration in there, and this, and I think these are the only places where anything like that. Daniel, the, well, the Torah or, or 
Tanakh. Ta Daniel is... Daniel, yeah, Daniel. But I'm thinking that it's not a big part of, like, the, the Bible story, because, like, they didn't have supermax prisons. What did they do? They executed people. But Joseph is... I mean, I think one of the things about Joseph's story is because he is Ishmatzliach, truly everything he touches turns to gold. Even the disasters turn to gold. He gets put into prison and he becomes chief of the prison. Everybody loves him. So I think that there's something about this story that is, um, you know, too good to be true. When I, I'm just, of course, just completely devastated. I, I can't even begin to go there to think about what it is to be held in these tunnels or to be held whatever it is that they're held. When when this first happened, because you know the the famous uh, Hirsch Goldberg Poland, he's you know got contacts here. Bert Vizotsky, our you member of my show and a professor retired now from the seminary, is is a, is a cousin. And there's another someone who works with Amy, who's a cousin, uh, first cousin. You know, I had this reaction. Like I'm, mean, I, I, it's a terrible thing that I, I had this reaction. I, I, it's the wrong thing to think, but I almost sort of like, I, I hope they're not alive because. No, I, that's a realistic. You know, it's it's there. It is as if they've been murdered, and so they're, you know, to be alive. It's like to be the Walking Dead. And and I, I especially because everything that we're hearing about the sexual assault and everything is just, I, I just cannot bear this. The thought. Of, of what they're going through um it's it's just beyond belief and but the other the other thing about that is you know we have a long it's, there's not a lot of prison in the Tanakh but there is a lot of prison in Jewish history and we have a very strong I've spoken about this in, in the show in the past couple of weeks and we will again this week when we have a guest from Israel coming in about the the importance Traditionally, of the mitzvah pidyon shavuim, also I know redeeming captives, and and we've talked about this over the years with Israel's prisoner exchanges. You know, over a thousand prisoners for Gilad Shalit. Um, you know, the 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 hostage swaps now. Yahya Sinwar, the head of the head of Hamas, was was in the Gilad Shalit swap. Yeah, and so, but there's also there was a there was a a paper. In the 1950s or 60s, by Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, who was one of the significant, um, you know, religious Zionist authorities, uh, who talked about the, you know the Mishnah says you can't, you can't, you shouldn't redeem people for for more than they're worth, quote unquote. Meaning, you know, you got to you got to realistically assess if you're driving up the price, if you're encouraging more kidnapping, if you're, you're making incentivizing, yes, you incentivize it. So Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli did write. And this is based on a Tazapot in Gitin. That's not how Pikuach Nefesh works. Exactly. That's, if you can save a life, save the life. And don't think about the stuff that may, you know, reverberate down the causal chain. If, if you can, if you can be, you know, if you can do Pikuach Nefesh and save a life, save a life. And and I just that's the only thing I can think about is is that 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 regretful feeling I had that. The feeling that, which I now regret, thinking that death would be preferable to what the to the depredations that they may be. So, so this is part but of the, the save the life. You know, th this is how you can survive this, and and of course, you know, people we 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 lived with the generation. May they the the remaining survivors still be well. You know, they they were able to put.
put their lives back together in some way, some successfully, some less successfully. Of course, we don't read about the, you know, the less heroic ones. Um, and th this, of course, you know, accompanies us in Jewish life, especially today. I don't know, Barry, if you have, you know, the... the... there. I guess, you know, what strikes me is that there are limits to how we can use the Torah to understand modern life. I think that we study Torah because it helps refine our thinking. And as you mentioned earlier, it sensitizes us to things that we really hadn't thought about. I mean, up until recently, we really don't think of Joseph as a hostage. Um, but now we do. And that doesn't give us necessarily any insight into what we should do today. It might give us some insight into how we understand Joseph, which then might translate into some shaping of what we think an appropriate response would be. But, you know, real life has its own sets of rules that we have to pay homage to, as it were. And, you know, I'm reluctant to get wrapped up in the Torah as if the Torah has an answer for how we should behave in a situation like this. Well, I agree with what Jeremy said, you know, you need to save a life because we all know that if it's our direct relative, that's what we would want. So I, I'm, I'm reading this with, with um, you know, not only to try and get some insights, but also to try and find parallelisms and, and analogies. And, and one beautiful way that um, the story is told, you know, if a prisoner, someone who's been in jail reads the story of Joseph in a different way than most of us, than all of yeah. us. And, and one of the things that was so fascinating, I remember reading about this uh, one year when I was preparing to teach about this, and the dream life of jailed prisoners is a subject of conversation among prisoners. Yeah. They, they, and, and it makes total sense because they're, they're confined and, and they have a rich dream, or those that have a rich dream life will have a rich conversation with the fellow prisoners. And, and isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that it becomes a subject of study? What do, what do people in jail dream about and how do they talk about it? And of course, you know, it, you know, it shouldn't surprise us then that it's a theme here, a very, very strong, you know, this, let's say it's the central motif of the Joseph story, that it's the dreams that get him in trouble. It's the dreams that get him out of trouble. It's, you know, it's a bedroom. You know, it's, I, I would just want to add two things. When we were talking about prisoners before, so one of the famous prisoners in Jewish history is the Maharami Rotenberg, yeah. who was taken prison and he refused to let his community ransom That's him because he was concerned that it would only invite more kidnapping. kidnapping. But I have to think, you know, I read the story many, many times. I doubt that too many of us would be able to make the decision that the Myron M. Rothenberg made. Um, the other thing that I would say about Joseph and the dreams is what's so intriguing to me is that the dreams set in motion the story, but then what really is important to the story is not Joseph the dreamer, but Joseph the interpreter of dreams. Nice. And we hardly ever go back to the dreams that Joseph dreams to see how do they actually inform the rest of the story. And it's something that we we might do. I don't have an answer here because I myself have not done it. Um, 
but no, no, I think, know, I think it, was taken, next week they have a serious reaction. You know, when after one of the dreams it says Yako Shamar had the bar, he took note. Um, and then we don't really see how it plays itself out. We are anyway, go ahead. That when the brothers come down, he remembers the dreams. So, so they, because they, they bow down, yeah, they bow, they bow down, and the sheep, as it were, the sheep of the hungry brothers bowing down to the sheep of the food provider, the mushbeer, right. right, right. um, seems that both of those dreams seem to be fulfilled. We know it, Joseph knows it, the, the, the brothers don't quite get it. Um, wait, I wanted to say something about oh, prisoners. So, there's a uh, you probably have heard of this, or some of our readers and listeners will have heard about this, but there was a Dutch diarist called Eddie Halesum, um, and she was like, so to speak, the grown-up Anne Frank. She she was in her 20s and 30s, and she was ultimately murdered by the Nazis. She was from Amsterdam and sent to Ravensbrück, and she had very extensive diaries and very extensive letters. Wonderful writer. And there's a member of my shul named Susan Stein, who's an actor, and she she's made up over the years um, a, a varying, you know, evolving one-woman show of reading um, Eddie's material in character. And what she typically does is she, all over the world, I mean, all of the United States and in the UK, I don't know, maybe someplace else also, but in English-speaking places, she does a lot of work in prisons because the the what she reads out of Eddie is the stuff that she wrote in the concentration camps about how one in the most grim physical circumstances can find an inner freedom. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a cliche, but but totally true that, you know, people can imprison your bodies and of course that will diminish the spirit. And, and as you said before, it's hard to imagine, especially the children being the same on the other end. Um, They'll, they'll be scarred forever. But it is also true that you can have some freedom in how it is that you respond to these terrible, terrible events. And and what Sue does, Susan does, is uh, use the, the Holocaust stories of, of Eddie Halesim to help people access some sense of inner freedom. Um, so we have to we have to bring this to a close. You know, we are re recording this uh, Arab, Arab Hanukkah, or Arab Hanukkah, you know, day before Hanukkah. Um, you know, we've, we've been reciting the prayers for the Khatufim, the Shvuyim, you know, using the language of uh, you know, our brothers and sisters of the household of Israel who are in terrible, terrible torment. Uh, and may God take them out of darkness to light. And, and that now co coincides with the calendar. The, co the calendar is from darkness to light, the lighting of the one candle and the successive evenings of more and more candles and more and more light. And, and I'm wondering, you know, and hoping and imagining that, that the calendar will give inspiration to Klal Yisrael. The calendar will give strength to the families of the, of the Khatufim and the, the calendar will give strength to the people fighting now for uh, this challenge, this existential challenge to preserve and to maintain and to keep safe uh, Israel from this this horrible, heinous, evil enemy. Um, that's that's the prayer here, and it's 
Mafila Laura, to go from darkness to light. Amen. Amen. We wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom and a happy Hanukkah. And we look forward to seeing you all. Thank you for watching. We hope that you've we, you, we've given you a lot of questions. And we'll see you next week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.